Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Mind Escape. We have episode number 217 today. Uh, we are joined again by Laura Taboni, who runs the Megalith Hunter uh, YouTube channel, and she's also got an awesome page on Instagram. I have both those links down below the video, uh, so go check that out when you get a chance. Uh, before we get started here, uh, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Just uploaded a bunch of stuff on there, some awesome stuff. A uh, segment with uh, Dr. Rick Strassman, segment with Laird Scranton, a uh, segment with Matthew Clark about the Lucinian Mysteries and uh, Entheogens. Uh, so go head on over there and check those out. And one more thing, head on over to indrasweb.org. This is a social media platform we created to connect open minds. So whether you want to speculate, hypothe- hypothesize, theorize, or just anything having to do with the uh, topics we discuss on this podcast, head on over there, set up a a profile. We're still working on trying to get that in the app store. And also here is a picture of the mind escape t-shirt we are giving away at the end of October. So if you're interested in the giveaway, all you have to do is go to Apple podcast, leave us a five-star review um, and uh, take a screenshot of it and then send it to mind escape podcast at gmail.com. Or you can just go to our website at mindescapepodcast.com and uh, yeah, we'll enter for the uh, the giveaway. So, all right. Welcome back on the show, Laura. This is part two. Part one, we kind of did a, a slideshow thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, we got a lot of good stuff in there. And you showed us around the island a little bit because you do live on Malta, which is awesome. Uh, so have you done anything recently since we did our episode? Like, have you hiked around or saw any different of the sites? Hi guys. Well, thanks for having me back on. I can think of a better way to spend a Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) I know last time we were, we were in a bit of a hurry because I had something um, afterwards. So this time I think it's great just to chill. Um, Yeah. I have been hiking around a little bit. Um, I'm still determined to find megaliths that no one has found before. And I got this, fixation recently to have a look for the cyclopean wall that had been mentioned by Giorgio Grenier de Vasse. Now he was an architect um, that had lived abroad, he was from Malta, and then he came back to Malta and he, he was also an antiquarian and a classicist and he became quite obsessed with the idea that the Plato's Atlantis was based on reality and that it was based on Malta. Um, And he did find some megalithic ruins. It was the time when Gigantia was first um, discovered. It was the time when Hajraim was first discovered. And he had drawn some pictures of a cyclopean wall that he said was in the town of Mosta, which up until now hasn't got any references to megalithic remains. Um, And if if they did exist at that time. I mean, there were no other, I don't believe they were mentioned by any other antiquarians um, or any of the other people involved in excavations on Malta at the time. And they would probably have been destroyed by building work that's taken place in that area since then. 
But I thought, you never know. Why not? Let's just go for a hike and see what we can find in that area. Um, so I wandered around and, I mean, I didn't find a cyclopean wall, but I did find some megaliths in a field built into rubble walls, which are the modern farmer boundary walls. So often when they build um, rubble walls to demarcate their properties, they will use a megalith that's there. That, that does happen in other parts of the island, but those megaliths are recorded. And these ones, I couldn't find any reference. So I thought, oh my gosh, I found some megaliths that nobody's mentioned before. They're not mentioned in any of the old museum reports. They're not mentioned in any old excavation reports that I can find. Amazing. But then I did find a reference to them in, from about, I don't know, 10 years ago when the area was being earmarked for development like a little bit to the south, people had actually, um, specialists had come there and had a look and recorded those megaliths. But I was impressed in the, se in the sense that I could recognize that they were just not random rocks. They, they were megaliths built into rubble walls, modern rubble walls. And also I was, um, I was kind of excited because there, there hasn't been much hype around that. And that does mean that even though that guy was talking Cyclopean walls and Atlantis and whatnot, I mean, he did know what ruins look like. And so it's very possible that he did record actual ruins. And if there are ruins in that town as well, that's just another location where there were megaliths, probably temples as well. And that means it's like more than 60 locations um, that have been referenced in the past couple of hundred years, a good majority of which still have at least, you know, a few blocks remaining. So imagine how many there were originally on an island of 300 and something square kilometers. That's that's crazy. So are there still excavations yeah. going from archaeologists and stuff going on today or do they feel like they found most of what they're going to find? Um, I think from what I know, the, the main ongoing excavations are at Roman sites. Um, no, they do. They do know that there are other sites that have not been excavated, but often that's because they're on private property or probably they are leaving them for future generations. Um, uh, I mean, they're, they're protected though. They are protected megaliths. Like there'll be a buffer zone around them and right. it cannot be developed or anything like that. I mean, how does um, it work? Is the whole island a UNESCO site at this point? <laughs> well, there's, there's quite a few UNESCO sites and then a few that are likely to become UNESCO sites. Like there's um, some stuff online about it, um, but they're the main huge intact temples. The other megaliths are just protected um, lo by the local authorities um, and the buffer zones around them. But I just find that that insane. Um, but I don't know about any future excavations, if they're going to do more work. From 2013 to 2018, as I had mentioned before, there was this project called the Fraxis Project, which, which was in international archaeologists and local archaeologists came together and they did um, reinvestigate some of the sites and create some new um, evidence for carbon dating and things like that. And I've read two of those um, reports that have been published on it, and it's really interesting. Um, but that's the most recent. So that was concluded in 2018. And then last year, they started publishing the monographs related to those excavations. Um, it just fine-tuned the carbon dating and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and then there was some interesting finds, which I've talked about a little bit on my channel, like that they found snail figurines deposited into a wall of a temple, which is a bit strange, like it must have been ritualistic. Mm. Um, and they found some blocks belonging to what they think was originally a trilithon structure 
that led up the hill towards Gigantia. So right now, Gigantia, which is a monumental complex, you enter it from the visitor center on the northwest and it's on a plateau overlooking a valley and you've got hills in the distance. Um, but it looks like originally they would have come up the valley, actually like made a procession up the hill towards it, which is quite interesting. So there's there's a few things like that I, I enjoyed reading about in those monographs, but they're very technical as well. I mean, they are written by experts. There's lots and lots of um, science in there. They've looked at pollen samples, mollusk samples, paleo soils. I mean, I'm no expert on that, but I can. Um, but I just looked at sort of the the more interesting highlights to do with those those excavations. Yeah, interesting. Uh, part one, we kind of focused on just the different sites, um, and the ones that you've been to, and we added some pictures. It was kind of like a slideshow episode. Um, I thought, you know, this time we talked about it, let's do some, some different stuff and, uh, some of the other mysteries and stuff on, on the Island. Um, let's talk about, um, the ritual activity and why archaeologists think that the temples were the site of some of these rituals. And we kind of discussed it a little bit uh, before, but why don't you go into a little bit more depth? Uh -huh. Well, so the archaeologists um, of the of the general opinion that the temples were for animal sacrifice and ritual feasting. So like the community would come together um, they don't think the animals were necessarily slaughtered at the temples, probably somewhere else, and then brought to the temples. And then various rituals took place and group feasting. And the reason they think this is because they found, obviously, lots of animal bones. And um, sometimes the animal bones are kind of deposited in strange ways. So, like, underneath the um, entrance to Gigantia, they found um, a, a bowl with a bull's horn in it. And pottery sherds and seashells, like hundreds of seashells. So it looked like a ritual deposit on entrance into the temple. And then in all of the temples, they found lots of animal bones, flint knives, um, hearths for, you know, cooking, um, altars. And in one of the altars at Tarxian, there was a little hole at the front and you remove this stone plug from it and they found um, animal bones and a flint knife within that kind of hole. So, and it definitely looks like an altar. Um, so, so that, and then you have these huge vessels and tiny vessels, which, which must all have been used for the group activity of, of feasting. And some of them are very shallow, like basins. And I always wonder if that was more like a mortar and pestle or, or something like that. Um, so, yeah, so you like have really deep, massive, giant vessels, you have like the shallow ones and you have like these tiny, tiny ones, which must have, as we said last time, held something important and special that could only be served in a small dose. Um, and yeah, and then you have like kind of these holes, like, ton like a tunnel at the front of a couple of the temples in the forecourt um, that could have had like an animal tied there with a rope. Although I... That's what the archaeologists suggest it was for. But then if they're saying that the slaughter took place elsewhere, why would you have live animals tied up outside the, outside the temples? I'm not sure. Um, and then there's this one apse at Hajarim, which is quite strange. It's like got, um, so as usual, it's, it's a semicircle. It's got the megaliths around the edge, a hole in it, and finely carved circular hole, which may have been for oracular and that pronouncements by a priestess etc you know the, the theory 
But then there were all these lower orthostats, like lower blocks going around the room. And one of the theories of the archaeologists is that that was like a, a, a pen to keep animals. So I don't know, on the one side, they say they were probably slaughtered elsewhere because there's not much evidence for slaughter there. On the other side, they think that they may have been kept there. I don't know. You read kind of conflicting reports. So, but basically based on the giant vessels and the animal bones, it looks as if, and the altars um, and, and the flint knives, it looks as if there was some sort of ritual feasting going on related to animals. How close is the closest island or um, somewhere like mainland area? It just in terms, because I'm just thinking like, if you look at Easter Island, one of the theories of why everybody disappeared is because they ran out of resources. And mm-hmm. there's only, you know, once you deforest the island and once you eat all the livestock and, you know, there's no, you know, I know one of the other theories is that birds were you know crapping out seeds and then the seeds would grow into you know different uh plants and vegetables and things like that but they when they ate all the birds that kind of went away as well is there something you think that happened on malta like that where maybe they just ran out of resources or was it close enough where they could have made a, a boat or a ship or something and went somewhere nearby well according to the um to the Fraxis project um, the archaeologists think that that project actually did look at um, the environmental degradation of that period of time. And they do believe that the environment did degrade over the time the temple people were here. And then you have a big gap in time between the temple people and the Bronze Age people that came later. So they, it's clear that they they did leave the island or, or the population was decimated because they ran out of resources. Um, but they, but when they looked into it, yes, there's definitely environmental degradation. The d- environmental degradation and the and the emptying of the island coincides with the climate anomaly that took place in the Mediterranean around 2200 BCE. Um, so, so they do think that it was for environmental reasons that the population emptied out. Now, did they all die or did they go away? Of course, I mean it's more likely they went away because we know they traded overseas. There's obsidian tools been found from the Neolithic period on Malta, and there was no obsidian to be found in Malta. So it had to have come from um, nearby islands like Pantelleria or Lipari, which is north of Sicily. So they must have had some seafaring capabilities. Um, And also the distance isn't that far. It's not like Easter Island. Um, right. So it's it's possible that they did leave the island and you know just move somewhere else, but where? Well, that's the question. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I know it seems like from the pictures that um, it seems like a place that could get very dry very easily. It's not like a very lush yeah. looking island. I'm sure there are spots, but uh, I mean you can speak oh, to yeah. that. Is is it? It seems like it's almost like Sicily in some parts where it seems like very arid and dry. Yeah, it is very arid and dry. Um, the, the, there are no real water sources here, or nothing all year round anyway. The valleys are all dry valleys. It would have been very different in the Mesolithic. Neolithic probably a little bit lusher as well, but now it's, it's changed a lot. Um, I still think, though, that even if the Neolithic, even if it was really a lot lush, lusher, you know, a lot more greenery, a lot more vegetation, I still find it incredible that whatever population needed to build upwards of 60 temple sites, which meant there must have been 
well, hundreds of domestic settlements as well. Right. How they actually survived, really, without... I mean, they must have traded a lot, but then most of the um, pottery that's been found is very characteristic of Malta and insularity. So that's also strange. Yes, they did seem to get tools from abroad, but it's not like you've got loads of artifacts that show it was trading with another civilization overseas. Yeah, I mean, I know um, we discussed this a little bit last time, but you, Malta is pretty unique from uh, the language um, to, you know, just the way that the megaliths kind of look. I mean, yeah, some of them do look a little similar to other sites around the world, mm -hmm. but it does kind of have its own feel and vibe. I guess it could be because of the, the stone that they used. I mean, it could be a lot of different uh, factors, but, you know, there is some crossover stuff too, like those spirals. You know, I said, like I said, they those are found mm. in um, Neolithic Europe. You know, you go to like Newgrange, those same spirals are found, stuff like that. So um, do the archaeologists uh, think that there's any... Um, do they do they know about like any of the gods or goddesses? Like, is their names? Have they found any like writing oh, or no, inscriptions? No. no, no. This is prehistoric, so there are no inscriptions and no text related to this time period. Um, I mean, even the the goddess worship theory is not really on solid ground because the the statues could be androgynous. It's not completely clear, um, and and it might not be a deity. It might be a leader of that community um, or a priestess or a priest or something like that. So, yeah, no one's really certain on that. I mean, I know worldwide and certainly in popular literature now it's seen as this um, goddess-worshipping site. And it's certainly when you look at the statues, you get that vibe. Um, but, but from a technical point of view, the archaeologists are not sure of that. Now, a lot of... Um, alternative kind of theorists think that the the sheer intensity of the monuments on the island must mean the island was a lot bigger but we know that the island was bigger but only um during the last ice age when it wasn't inhabited but during the neolithic it was pretty much the size we see today mm. um so so still you think really how lush it must it must have had to be like major amazing for resources to sustain such a population that needed that many temples unless there was another theory i read which i kind of like this idea was that it was used more as a pilgrimage site so you actually don't have that many domestic settlements what you might have is i guess the equivalent of a hotel like a, a village with mud huts that's um that's like a neolithic kind of temporary settlement for people right. coming to go to the temples to worship at certain times of the year and then leave Almost again, like maybe. the Greeks going to like Eleusis or I just read an article about or a paper about uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and how even uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls where they were found were probably a, likely as some sort of site that was like a pilgrimage site instead of some mm -hmm. sort of a scene settlement or something like that. Um, so no, I mean, I again, I, I mean, you see writing pop up in Egypt around 3200 B.C., um, Obviously, some of these sites are a little bit older than that. So they have never found any sort of writing other than the symbols and the symbolism found at some of these sites. Yeah, that's right. And nothing nothing from the Bronze Age. I mean, no, the historic period started a lot later here. Hmm. Okay. So, when did the um, historic period start? 
So that will be when, so after the Bronze Age, you have the, um, the Phoenician settlements and then, and then Roman settlements. Mm-hmm. So that's when you've got, we've got like a Punic inscriptions, um, and not that many, but a few Punic inscriptions have been found around the island and Stella and stuff. So um, that's, yeah. How do you feel like, I mean, have you found any other connections between Malta and any other Neolithic or megalithic sites around the Mediterranean or I guess even the world? I mean, I do see similarities, um, really strong similarities between Malta and Menorca, but the Menorca ones are later. They're from the Bronze Age. And I, and I, I got, I was thinking, well, maybe they just left Malta and that's where they went next. Um, Although, I mean, there's no evidence for that. But the the way they have, like, these circular kind of towers, it does look quite similar. Okay, they had T-shaped pillars, which reminds you more of Gobekli Tepe um, than Malta. But I don't know, they look quite similar. Um, and then in terms of, like, ritual sacrifice, um, that is something that's in a lot of Neolithic cultures. I mean, they found evidence of it in the pre-Neuragic cultures of Sardinia, and then, of course, in later, um, this, this first civilizations like Egypt, it was a, a huge factor. Um, and obviously in classical Greece and, and Roman times. So, I mean, animal sacrifice and this kind of ritualistic thing, it's, it's been there for a long time. And, and I think that there's no reason to think that the, they were not somehow connected, these cultures. Mm. There's no evidence to say they were, but the fact they were all practicing similar things for whatever reason that we're not really sure about. I mean, right. I mean, because I think I brought this up last time, but uh, I ha- I do see similarities between even some of the cyclitic culture figurines and gods and goddesses, and then also even like to like Urfa man found it like Gobekli Tepe, yeah. and I know that they think that a lot of the Greek, uh, you know, migrations came from Western Turkey, obviously, then into that area. But do you think it's possible that maybe some of those people made it? Uh, west earlier and then came to malta or sardinia and like populated those areas because it seems like there is some similar similarities there as well well the cycladean um civilization is also later that's bronze age so i mean malta malta's older right so it might be the other way around but then that kind of messes up the whole theory of everything going from the fertile crescent west agriculture kind of started there and went west then megalithism of Gobekli Tepe kind of started there and then went west. Mm-hmm. Um, because like Malta is one of the earliest. There's some pre-neurogic megalithic stuff in Sardinia, although not that much. The megalithic um, buildings got that that became much more of an intense kind of project in Sardinia later. Menorca also Bronze Age, of course, Bronze Age, I believe. So actual firmly in the Stone Age. Um, there's not that many megalithic sites. Well, there are, I mean, dolmens and right. stone circles, but I mean, fully fledged temple sites, like sure. these really complex buildings, not so much. Um, so, I, you know, you could say maybe it was started in Malta. Well, let's say Turkey, then somehow Malta, and then went east, went west, kind of, you know, it's really hard to, to say. Um, but it is one of the oldest sites to have such a fully fledged, complicated megalithic building activities. Mm-hmm. 
Because obviously you've got your stone rows and your menhirs and dolmens, and there are thousands of them all over the place. And many do date back to the to the uh, 4,500 BCE, um, so really even earlier than Malta. But, yeah. but this this kind of temple culture, when I first was learning about Menorca, I thought, oh, maybe they are they contemporary, but they're, they're not. I mean, Menorca was a lot later, unless we say that we've got something wrong when we're looking at the dating. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know we recently, uh, a few episodes ago, had Laird Scranton on, and he follows linguistics and philology and of you know ancient civilizations and for patterns and things like that and he was talking about like the pharaohese have people have similar uh language to words that are found in the maltese language as well um obviously the language came later um which Mm -hmm. you know does that mean though that maybe like you said like maybe it came uh from east to west you know, from parts of Europe to east to west instead of just west to east, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's really, I mean, it's quite hard to trace. We have this very simplistic sort of viewpoint of it, just everything kind of moving from the Fertile Crescent and, and not necessarily um, a cultural diffusion, more that each area just kind of learned these things by themselves at the same time. Right. <laughs> like in this area here and then here. <laughs> and then, you know, not the same time, but like um, chron- chronologically going from east to west. But there's a lot of anomalies to that and a lot of things that can't be explained with that. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of open to other ideas. And like, I mean, the thing is that if in the Neolithic you didn't really have that many resources here, but you felt the need to build, like, I would say probably there was 100 temples originally, and they're very complicated setups, um, complete with their artwork and their statues and their finely carved altars, it must have been a really important site, and maybe it was a pilgrimage site for all of the other sort of Neolithic Stone Age civilizations around the Mediterranean. And, it's, and also keep in mind that... Um, all that will remain is, is something as important as a pilgrimage site. The kind of mud brick huts and the other and the Neolithic villages and settlements, they don't find many of those because they're hard to find. So you could have had quite a few dotted around that were quite important um, domestic settlements, which are all destroyed today with urban development, all over the Mediterranean. And all the people that belong to those um, traveled here for pilgrimage. Mm. I mean, like I say, there's no evidence. This is quite wild speculation. But I'm just trying to find, um, you know, <laughs> I've read people, out of all the things I've read that are alternative, that that does actually make logical sense. What about, like, around the coastline? Have they ever found anything, like, off the coast or maybe if the sea levels weren't as high at one point or anything like that? I mean, people have found things but there's never the the, um what they found has never been substantiated by further investigators sure so it's hard to say i mean there was reports of a temple being off the north coast and it was at a depth which would mean it was well mesolithic but i mean it it can't really be because we know from the evidence that's been found so far that there's no carbon dates to that period and there's no human um activity from that period so when the sea levels were lower and the cart ruts that go into the sea are off the cliff, those are because of like regional and more recent seismic activity. It's not because it was when the island was bigger that they were carved out. 
because um, because then there's a this whole theory that maybe the carts are really really old and older than the temples and everything. Yeah, let's talk yeah. about the cart ruts for a second. Um, if anybody's interested, you can go look up pictures of them. But uh, is that the the prevailing wisdom on those that those are for sure cart ruts? Have they found carts uh, that? Oh no, no, no. I mean, nobody knows. I mean, if you read the papers that the archaeologists have put together on them, they're like, I mean, they say that there's just nothing to explain the varied characteristics of them. Yes, they're probably transport. Probably, but what type of transport they just cannot verify. Do any of them lead um, to, to any of the megalithic sites? No, they don't. Okay. They don't lead to the megalithic sites, but then a lot of them have been destroyed. I mean, you can stand in one like, there's one in the grounds of the hospital, which a lot, a lot of people don't realize is there. It's not signposted. It was just kind of protected by a wall when the hospital was built. And then if you go like a few kilometers north to this town of San Juan, there's another set of protected cart ruts. Well, if you look at a map, it's quite clear that they, they were once connected. And it's thought that that's the case with a lot of them around the island. So we're looking at what we're looking at right now of hundreds of cart ruts would have maybe been one huge network. Um, people have said maybe they're for irrigation, but that's been disproven. So now it's very much... Um, the theory that they had something to do with transport, but they just don't know what, and they don't know exactly when. They think it's pre-Punic, so they're going for the Bronze Age. They don't think it's as far back as Neolithic, when the temples were built, but there's actually no real reason to say, there's no carbon dating for this. There's nothing um, that you can really associate with it in terms of dating. Well, for cart ruts too, is there an equal distance between the grooves all the way down yes. because if it if it's not i would think that then it's for sure not a cart rut it's just has oh no they all have a okay. similar gauge okay. they all have a similar gauge but then they do strange things so like sometimes um they'll be like let's say it's um 20 centimeters deep what's that in inches <laughs> you guys are working in inches uh, <laughs> let's say 10 inches and then all of a sudden it just drops at a right angle and goes down like another 10 inches which would be impossible with any kind of a wheel or a sledge right. um, to navigate. It's eight and then inches. They... <laughs> Great. Get precise and then they, they crisscross each other. They go curvy. Some are going down slopes. Some are on flat land. And some you get all these crazy sets. I mean, the ones called Clapham Junction after the um, British railway station, they're they're pretty famous because, and, and they attract a lot of tourists because there's just so many of them in this one space and they don't seem to make any sense. They all just crisscross each other. Some are really deep, some are shallow, some are curved, some are straight. Um, but there's quite a few sets like that. But I'm not, I mean, I, I find all this stuff going through references online, going through loads of different books. There's lots of resources for this, but then there's no one resource where everything is in one place. So you have to really investigate quite a bit. Um, but when you do that, you, you find some interesting sites. Like I, I went for a walk one day looking for one that I'd read about. And it was this really complex set, almost as big as Clapham Junction, on the side of a road that I don't think anyone knows is there. So I, I go off and I'm going through all the undergrowth and looking at them and I'm just like, wow, and I'm taking all these pictures and all these people are just stood staring at me thinking, what is she doing? Because <laughs> they're not like the most famous ones. I don't think the people in that area even know they've got those like around. Right. Um, and they're just crazy. And I've noticed, and I haven't read too, I've, I've never really read um, a reference to this by anyone else, but I'm sure people have noticed it because it's quite obvious. They, 
they all seem to have like a, a ledge halfway down as mm. if like you know like a draw runner when you pull the draw right out and it sits on something so like some sort of inner track or something mm. and they all have that and they very much look carved out rather than worn down like they were purposefully carved so that's probably one of the reasons why um experts say bronze age because the it would have been easier to carve them out then than it would have been in the neolithic is there any other sites in the mediterranean that has a similar thing is like or did they yeah. okay where else there are do you a few. um they have them in sicily not that many though i mean i don't believe there's that many not compared to here um and there's some in turkey there's some in um in the azores in the atlantic of okay. portugal um so yeah there there are a few sites but you see when you research that you don't get many pictures when you look at malta i mean there's hundreds of them, sure which is also quite strange why did they only need a few in those other places but they needed loads of them here whatever this the people were that built them like what were they doing right and this i find absolutely like fascinating and that's why even though i call myself the megalith hunter i'm also the cartwright hunter <laughs> I, there you go i'm obsessed with them i to be fair when i put photos of cartwrights on instagram i don't think they get as many likes as uh, megalithic buildings or dolmens or whatever but but i'm absolutely fascinated by them so it's part of my research I'm how, gonna keep going around. how often do you go on your little adventures oh maybe once every few weeks i, I mean to begin with when i started this whole thing it was quite regular because I went back to all the places I've been just looking around. And this time I went with a purpose, you know, to really research it, to take lots of photographs, um, to look at things from different angles. Then I started making appointments um, with Heritage Malta to go to the closed sites, the sites that are closed to the public. Then I, um, as I went through old papers looking for megaliths that have been referenced but are not very well known, you know, off the beaten track so I can sort of take pictures of them. And now there's not that many. <laughs> I, I don't really think there's that many. Now, actually, all my hikes are not looking for ones that have already been investigated or referenced. Now it's I want to find ones that nobody's found before. Mm. So I just take a nice long hike. But during the summer, it wasn't very easy to do. That it was too hot. So yeah. I'm just kind of starting back up again with it now. Yeah, I mean, the next step might be just making friends with more people, trying to get on some private property. You mentioned maybe that there's some sites on some somebody's land or something. Yeah, I mean, there are. There are certainly dolmens on private property. And, and um, I mean, I don't know who owns those properties, but I know that you can. I've seen um, some bloggers in the past go to these places. So, you know, you can contact them and make an appointment, um, see if you can sure. talk to the owner and go and see them. So that's certainly something I can do at some point. And then I've also left a couple of... Um, places that i want to see in gozo i was like let me let me save a few things um but yeah now i'm going to sardinia next week and for sardinia i've already made an itinerary of the sites i'm going to um, mostly pre-neurogic ones i want to look at ones that are contemporary with malta sure and i've made a whole plan because it's just a few days that i have there um and so then finally my instagram feed and my website and my youtube channel will become more mediterranean focused than than just malta yeah that's awesome and that's the best way to start seeing the connections and things that's sweet yeah no absolutely and again if anybody hasn't done so already go check out laura's instagram page which i have the link down below and also her youtube channel which she does these 
you know, what are they, two to five minutes usually, your videos? Some oh, like eight to ten usually. Some of them, eight to ten, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they're they're packed full of information, and uh, she's obviously passionate about this, so go check that out. Um, so what, you know, I what can we learn from some of this stuff in terms of, like, for the future or, you know, even from the past? I know... Um, the old saying, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Is there anything that you can point to, you know, I, I know we already talked about like the resource thing. Obviously that's an obvious one, but is there anything else you can think of like that? Well, I, you know, I really want to get to the kind of bottom of what these rituals were all about. Okay. Let's do um, that. Cause it's hard. It's hard to understand what, I mean, even if you are walking around sacrificing animals and whatnot, what's that about? What, what, why do your deities want you to do that? Like, so we kind of know what was happening in um, Greece and Rome to some extent. Like you say, with the mystery schools, we actually don't really know a great deal, but we do know on the surface level what all that was about. You know, it was appeasing the gods, um, celebrating certain seasons, appreciating the return of the sun after the winter and things like that. So there was like a seasonal aspect. There was a survival aspect to it. And that's probably rooted in the deeper past. I mean, I assume it must be rooted in the Stone Age and there must be some continuity between these uh, cultures. They didn't just spring up in Greece and be just doing this stuff or Egypt or Mesopotamia. I mean, I think that they had to have been rooted in one of these prehistoric societies. But still, is it as simplistic as that? Is it really or was it really all about um, survival and appeasing the gods? Or was there something much more complex going on? Um, and, and that's that's really what fascinates me. I see it as like a, a huge mystery. I don't see it as something as basic as that. Well, yeah, and I, and I know we touched on it a little bit, but I mean, I have always been a proponent of, you know, I always ask people like, have you met the gods? Where are these gods? <laughs> um, and my solution to that has always been something that we talk a lot about on the show, which would be entheogens or entheogenic rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, mind alter you know uh altered states you know altered states of consciousness you know because i mean yeah you could make up a story um or like a myth i guess and and but just to truly believe it and go through like you said like these animal sacrifices or these rituals it would make a lot more sense if somebody felt like there was something real there right i don't know that's just my opinion Exactly. And I and I also wonder if um, I'd read something about like digesting certain animals that had eaten certain plants. Mm. Also, because if you ate the plant yourself, it could be dangerous and toxic. But if you ate, it, ate an animal that had digested the plant, then that can um, you can go into like a trance like state, but in a, a safe way or something like that. Yeah, there's evidence uh, in Siberia. Some of the shamanic tribes will um ingest reindeer urine after the reindeers consume the amanita muscaria there are um we did an episode on easter island where i kind of made my own connections that after they depleted everything on the island that they then maybe would fish you know the reefs around the island Mm -hmm. and there are reef fish uh that are found in all the way from hawaii to polynesia all the way to french polynesia that do have certain toxins. I forget that it's like ichthyoe toxins, some long word where you're basically, it's called like fish inebriation where you become 
um, there is something in it that, and they don't know if it's the fish eating like some sort of coral that has some sort of psychedelic or hypnotic effect or something mm-hmm. like that. But I mean, you might be onto something there in terms of um, some sort of animal eating some sort of maybe fungus or something along those lines that are found on the island. Yeah, maybe like, cause when I read something like that about that could have been one of the reasons for animal sacrifice, I thought, well, I mean, but then that, I don't see how that would apply to all the different diverse animals that were being eaten. The other thing I thought was um, maybe, so you can get into a translate state from fasting. That was something that also took place in um, ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. So instead of um, eating plants. So maybe they'd fasted for such a long period and then there was like a ritual feasting aspect to celebrate it or something when they came out of their trance or their initiatory period or something yeah. um and the way the apses can be closed off here you know the i mentioned before you have like these holes which they think were hinges and you would tie a rope and put a, like a barrier across which is decomposing them, like probably made of i don't know an animal skin or wood or something well maybe the apses were closed off because they were being used as kind of like um incubation initiation chambers like people would go there specifically on this kind of let's call it pilgrimage for want of a better word mm-hmm. either they are getting high from plants or they're going into a trance-like state through fasting and they go into the these places and they stay there for a certain fixed period until they get whatever messages they need to get and then they come out and feast and celebrate and maybe it's like several times a year or it coincides with certain astronomical alignments i don't know I mean, I'm just like, there's no evidence. I'm just like throwing it all out there. Cause that's no, that's a, a good thing. thing you know, do. you got to make uh, speculations at some point. Yeah. Do you exactly. think that, or have they looked into like were animals or livestock brought to the island at some point uh, pre-Bronze Age, like some of the more ancient stuff, or is there no evidence of that? Like where do they think oh. some of the, st- a lot of the stuff came from, or is it all just indigenous to the island? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they know. Like, I don't think they they know. It's just, yeah, it could be indigenous. Hmm. Um, I mean, from the Mesolithic, so I did a video on bone caves during the Ice Age. Obviously, the fauna on the island was quite different then to what it was in the Neolithic. Um, But I don't know how those animals got here, Hmm. like the Neolithic animals. It could be. I mean, if they had moved wholesale from somewhere else or they were setting it up as a pilgrimage site maybe they you know shipped everything with them i don't know yeah i mean i always use easter island as a reference point because we've done a lot of episodes on it mm-hmm. and like talking about it but yeah at some point the people that migrated from you know polynesia and micronesia and all those areas going east they definitely think that they brought pigs and livestock and you know, one of the other theories is that rats hitched a ride and then ate like the palm nuts on the island and deforested it that way and maybe ate some of the other stuff. Uh, <laughs> so I was just curious if maybe, uh, I mean, obviously if people migrated there, they probably brought something, I would imagine. They needed food for the travel, so. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we'll talk about this. I've got some stuff I wanted to talk about in the Patreon later for that. Sure. Um, some details that I've read in excavation reports about um, about where the people actually came from. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of, it, it's fascinating to me because I, I approach this in a really detailed way. 
as you can see. Not just because I've been in Malta, like without going anywhere for so long, <laughs> for the past like, almost two years, um, but because I really wanted to be thorough. You know, I want to visit every single site or at least reference every single site that currently exists. I wanted to go through all the archaeological research that's been done um, in a lot of detail, not just the guidebooks, you know, like the proper intense research, because a lot of work has been done, you know, cannot be ignored. There's lots of science gone into it. The carbon dating um, examples, like they've been, as I say, recently redone and they're, they're fairly confident in the dates that they've come up with. So I like to really go into detail on all of this and then start to speculate on finding connections because, you know, I'm not an expert and the whole point of doing this is to try and solve some mysteries. It's to bring together lots of different subjects for take an interdisciplinary approach, but use as much thorough research as I can. And then, so that now I've started reading some books with some alternative theories, looking at astronomical alignments, um, coming up with kind of my own ideas, looking at what you can learn from later civilizations that may have had their mythologies and their practices rooted in the ancient past. And, and that's where I'm at now. And now I'm starting to then cast that net a bit wider and, and take it to other countries to see what we can find there as well. Um, I think I have to read quite a few excavation reports in Italian, though, for Sardinia, which is going to be a challenge. Anyways, well, I th so if you can figure I can out, order wine, so I'm yeah. struggle a bit. <laughs> if you can figure out the Maltese language, I think you're okay. Because I think, like I said, oh, I haven't figured it out. But I mean, I've I've done I've done some courses. You know, I did I did the courses. I passed the courses. There you go. It's something. Um, but yeah, so I kind of but yeah, and I want to make sure that I don't I, that I do it really thoroughly. Once again, everything they found at each site, um, all the scientific evidence they have from that site. Um, how that relates to other sites in that area. And I'm going to build it out, you know, and just keep going around different places. Um, and that's kind of like the position I'm at now. And now I am starting to like speculate and find connections. And I think a lot of the alternative theories that have been put forward in the past were put forward without, um, without the most recent excavation reports because they've only just been published. Sure. And I think a lot of it was based on... Um, quite old work actually so now it's good to revisit all of this and and to look at it from a different angle and also you have a lot of people that write a lot of books that have never even been to any of these places they're just reading other people's papers or research and connecting their own dots but you're actually able to go to all these sites and physically be there so i think that that adds a layer when you're doing research and when you're making those connections that you might not see in other people's work because they're not there. You know, I, I think that that does make a difference in some regard. Uh -huh. so. I think it, like when you're just reporting on it, like when you see me doing YouTube videos and I feature some international sites, I'm reporting on it, talking about it, finding connections that I can see just, you know, on a, a fairly, as I always say, like a relatively superficial level. Um, but when I um, go into a lot more detail and anything I put on Instagram, that is my personal, like I visited it. And I put these conclusions and ideas together from really visiting these places and looking at them as well. And that's why I'm trying to be very thorough with each site so that I can um, leave no kind of stone unturned. <laughs> like, because even whenever I go to Hajraim here, I find I, I notice something I haven't noticed before. Every time. It's amazing. It's such a complicated site. Yeah. Um, I found something last week and oh, I was like, I, got, I came up with this idea and then 
And I thought, yeah, but the only way that I would be able to prove that is if there was this particular feature on it. I'll check the satellite image. I go on the satellite image and there is this particular feature on it. And I'm like, oh my God, mind blown. But I need to get some more information. So I've written to a couple of um, experts to, to see if anyone's noticed this feature <laughs> before right. I like talk too much about it. But like, yeah. And so I was like, once again, you just notice things. So it's in, I do think it's important to be thorough. I, I think it's the whole community within the megalithic space that's talking and within mysteries in general, ancient mysteries. There's nothing wrong with finding connections and researching without visiting the sites. But, um, but for anything that I do on Malta, I'm really trying to, obviously I can visit them. And in the Mediterranean in general, I can visit them. So I'm trying my best to do that, as well as obviously I am putting together videos where I feature things that I've seen um, in the UK and in Spain, which I haven't been to, um, or recently anyways, or certainly not when I've been of, an, of this kind of project where I'm taking photos and, mm. and, and everything like that. So it's, um, I want to do it as thoroughly as possible and as first person as possible, but you know, there are restrictions. <laughs> You know, you can't go everywhere and you do sometimes have to sort of put together conclusions based on other people's visits as well. But I love the fact that a lot of people on YouTube are going around sites and, you know, you could, they're going real close up, they're going into a lot of detail and that's great because then you can actually really look at it and then sort of form your own conclusions. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I find interesting since Malta is one of the older um, sites, um, prehistory sites, that if you even go back like 7,000 or, you know, uh, not 7,000, I think it would be 4,000 from the oldest Malta site. But if you look at Gobekli Tepe, um, it's just, it's crazy to think at like how uh, intricate some of those relief carvings are. There are figurines, there are so-called god, goddess stuff going on. Mm -hmm. You don't really see that at, at Malta. Malta just seems a little bit cruder, but it's so much later that it's, that, that, that just fascinates me. I yeah, don't... me too. I find that really strange. I'm actually really surprised by how detailed Gobekli Tepe is. Considering it's like what 9,600 BC. I mean, it that fascinates me because here, yeah, you don't get as many as many um, animal relief carvings, and the ones you have are very faint. Hmm. Even though the, some of the sites here were buried as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a strange one, isn't it? Do you think Malta maybe had that at some point, but because of you know erosion and being near the sea and the winds and the salt and all that, as opposed to a Gobekli Tepe where it was buried for so long, you know, I mean, Gobekli Tepe is almost 12,000 years old or 11,600 years old. And I mean, how old is the oldest site at Malta? Um, megalithic is like 3,800 BC. So 5,000 years old. Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it could be as an Island, obviously with the wind and the sea you could expect erosion. You know what I also find a bit strange here, though, is like some of the temples. Um, so they'll say that certain temples are all like, let's say, Gigantia period. But like one will have five apses, one will have three, one will be made of bigger blocks, another one smaller block. If you had that sort of sophisticated construction skills, would you not build them all the same right. or of the same level of quality? And some don't even have, they never... They never found anything in them. I mean, it could be that they were 
rummaged at some point over the thousands of years that's not in recorded history or in recent history. Um, but yeah, some of them don't even have altars or decorations or anything. Mm. Or remnants of plaster with red ochre, which some of them do have. So, you know, you know they had red walls. How durable is that stone versus like a, a, a I'm using granites, super, you know, hard and will, you know, last throughout the years. But I mean, limestone can slowly degrade. Like how, how durable is the stone that they use there compared to some of the other megalithic sites found around the world? Oh, no. I mean, it's quite soft. Soft. Okay. Yeah. Like it can, well, they use two types, Globigerina and upper coralline coralline is very coarse um it doesn't leave as smooth a finish globigerina can be carved much um nicer like finely more intricately right. and um, a lot of the spirals and the things that you see are carved into that type of stone and some of the temples are built of that and some of the other one but the actual decorations and the altars inside are usually made of the softer limestone yeah, just in Malta is just so bizarre, like I said, in comparison to a lot of the other sites. Maybe because they didn't have as many resources or something, I don't know. But uh... And people keep saying, like, oh, but don't you think they might be older because of the fact that there's a, quite a bit of variety between the different temples in terms of, that, like I say, the quality of the finishing. Um, the fact that there's so many monuments on one tiny island. Did maybe they're older, and it's from a time when the island was bigger. But the thing is, the carbon dating is the carbon dating. Right. And I mean, they've gone right into the paleo soils, you know, deep down around these temples, and pulled out so many samples. It's quite hard to to argue with that. Absolutely. Um... Um, unless there's something we're really missing. I always say this could be something really obvious that we're missing. Well, and yeah. the there being people there and then not people there for a while, you know, stuff like that makes you wonder because the areas, you know, there's some decent volcanoes in that, not on Malta, but in that area in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. maybe something happened at some point and they had to get, get out of there or mm -hmm. even worse. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just so fascinating. And uh, you're lucky that you get to live there. I know uh, there's probably some some perks to um, obviously you doing your show or your, uh, your channel and, and being able to go to the different sites. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that you're going to, you said you're going to Sardinia. Um, do you have a plan to just go to all the Mediterranean sites or is that something that you're just going to kind of play? Oh, by I want to go to all the sites in the world. <laughs> hey, that's... You know, it's all budget dependent. <laughs> Um, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and I and like I say, I want to do it in a really um, a really thorough way. Hmm. So when I do go to Sardinia next week, it, I won't be able to do all the sites on the island. There's hundreds, um, but I'm going to do a few key sites that I think can help build out a theory of what was happening in the Mediterranean at the time. All right, folks. Sorry about that. Sometimes it drops out for a second, but. Uh... Yeah, we were just discussing you going to all the different sites in uh, Europe and then even the world. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to do as thorough a job as I can because it takes a really long time to read all these reports and books on each site. And I really want to be as comprehensive as possible because I really want to solve some mysteries here. Um, and, I mean, there's so much really good work already been done. And 
and now it's like it's a matter of kind of trying to unite all of that academic work that's been done all that major expert soil samples you know every detailed thing which is quite boring to read with what those of us as independent researchers can see as kind of connections in other interdisciplinary matters Mm. Um, because we have kind of when you work within that you your expertise is so niche in, in one specific area and i like the fact that as independent researchers we can just sort of take it all and yes it doesn't mean you're going to create like solve the mystery or conclude everything once and for all because that would that would be kind of i think quite difficult um because no one can be an expert in everything and when you do start to look at things on an interdisciplinary level you are you're going to miss some things obviously because you're not an expert in each thing but you can definitely start to speculate and come up with some ideas that um that make sense of it all so did you did you study any of this stuff in school or this is just all something that came up later that's just your passion i mean what originally i did businesses and language and then in my master's degree which was a few years ago i did mediterranean studies Hmm. which yeah i mean it's mediterranean studies but i mean i'm not a historian and i'm not an archaeologist or anything um it's it was an interdisciplinary course, but what it taught me was sort of how to research, because my first degree was 20 years ago, you know, and it was back then you didn't even have online journals. Now you have all these online journals, there's lots of things being digitized. Um, it really taught me how to approach things in a disciplined way and to to really root through all the data mm. um, and to reference it properly as well. So that's, um, so it has come in handy and obviously being Mediterranean studies, it did, you know, feature the Mediterranean. <laughs> so my, actually my mass, my master's dissertation was on the evil eye belief. Um, so it was, a, I'd actually had a fairly anthropological approach to my dissertation. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I was just I curious. And I, I don't know if you're aware of the, uh, the vibe out there with archeologists, but even like on Twitter, they're like super aggressive and like dismissive and even mean, uh, I mean, there's a couple cool <laughs> ones, but I, and I'm not trying to generalize, but if you, they're all against, they call anything that's not part of their work pseudoscience is basically what it comes down to. So if they look at, uh, I mean, that's okay. I mean, you know, it, we're not trying to get jobs as archaeologists because we're not archaeologists. Right. And I think they um, feel more threatened by archaeologists that are actually looking into this kind of stuff than they do exactly, about the general public. Worse. Yeah. The independent researchers, as I say, we're not experts. Um, I have a good grounding in research. I'm educated in the Mediterranean and I understand, um, you know, like, like I said, my dissertation on the evil eye, that was about belief systems and, and that fascinates me. But I'm not an expert and, I, and that's my disclaimer. I'm not. I'm an independent researcher that wants to that's chosen this area because it fascinates me it interests me for like for such a long time i've been passionate about it i've read so many books on it i've been following all the researchers for years um but it's just been something that i didn't have the time to turn into anything until Mm. the past year and now my angle on it is trying to be really thorough thorough in looking at the the secondary research that's kind of academic and really serious and differentiating that by what the independent research is coming up with but looking at it all and then kind of putting it all together and speculating based on that and coming up with my own ideas obviously and i think um it is important to bridge that gap i mean 
yes, everybody kind of is trying to do that. Like everybody's saying, let's bridge this gap. Let's um, let's not be so niche and specific as the experts, as the archaeologists. Let's open it up. Let's look at other subjects. Let's look at it from different angles. And I think that's great. But I still think we must not forget that so much research has been done, which is very highly scientific and very interesting. And thousands of pages have been written by these experts, so it shouldn't be dismissed. But what we need to do is take that and then mix that with the other kind of subjects. Like, I think it's important to look at it from all different angles, geological, environmental, um, looking at, like, it's really like we're not supposed to like I guess look at classical Greece and say that their beliefs are steeped in the Stone Age and that's why they were doing the things they were doing here. But it's really um, but that's it's speculation and it's okay to do it when you say disclaimer I'm not an expert right. and what I do write and what I do come up with is based on this interdisciplinary approach. But you can't say that I'm not using the good references because I'm using all the proper references and using all the academic research. I'm not saying. The temples are way older and then just ignoring the carbon dates. I'm saying these are the carbon dates, but these are the reasons why it it looks a bit strange. Well, I mean, you even have this paper that came out recently this week to show those footprints. I don't know if you saw uh, found mm-hmm. um, in New Mexico that date all the way back to, I think White Sands is where they found it, all, all the way back mm-hmm. to 21,000 years ago. And there's a cave in Chiquihite, Mexico that they found 30,000-year-old stone tools. You know, like... So like this idea that Clovis first in the Americas that's been prevailing for so long is obviously wrong. And there's alternative researchers like Graham Hancock, who archaeologists hate, that have been saying that for like the longest time. So you see, that's what I like about Graham Hancock, though. Um, and he's I wrong mean, about is, stuff, but he admits it usually when he's wrong. There is about difference in, in quality right, of independent research. And that's why I'm really trying to take this kind of approach where I use as much of the actual data that, that, that there is. Um, and then mix it with sort of speculation and mm. other theories and sort of sensible ideas. Um, what I like about Graham Hancock is he's done not just really, he doesn't just use incredibly good secondary research. Like he does go through proper reports and books from experts in detail and he sifts through so much data. So his secondary research is extremely detailed, but he also does a lot of primary research. I mean, he's hired people in the past to go around um, doing his own data analysis on things. So, I mean, the, that's solid work. Mm-hmm. So think... when they start saying pseudo, I think, well, I mean, yeah, let's say once again, independent researchers are not experts. They're not trained as archaeologists. And if they were trained as archaeologists, they wouldn't be able to do this. They wouldn't be able to look at the other interdisciplinary subjects related to it. Look at it from different angles conduct their own research on their own budget. Like, um, it wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to do that. So I think it, there's nothing wrong with, with, with him doing that as long as you do do it in a fairly detailed way, as I said. I think that there's an element of jealousy, and I know probably a lot of archaeologists would scoff at that, but I think there's an element of jealousy in the sense that he's not tied to academia, so he can speculate. He can look at the bigger picture. He can put pieces together that a real scientist is not even supposed to do, you know, like through the scientific method. Uh, So there's that aspect of it. But I also think that there's um, a a jealousy in the sense that, um, again, not that he's right all the time, but like the Clovis first thing, like he's been saying, you know, for a long time now that Clovis first, there's people that have been there. There's evidence showing that there's 
evidence or there's that there's people in the Americas before uh, 14,000 or 15,000 BC or whatever the date was. Um, so you have that. And then you also have the science communicator aspect of it, which is most archaeologists are not good public communicators. Like they're not, they're not, again, I'm on Twitter. I see it's a lot of fighting. It's a lot of putting people down, especially the public. Like I find that science and, and Avi Loeb, who we've had on, who's, you know, one of the mm-hmm. most accredited scientists out there that now he's looking at extraterrestrial life possibly and the Galileo project and all this stuff. There's some people that scoff at that, but he's got a lot of credentials and he, you know, has said many times that science should serve the public, should serve public interest. It shouldn't self-serve, you know, like a lot of these people just, they want this slow crawl within academia, this like slow, you know, this going through all the minutia and just build this picture through this. I don't, I, I don't even know how to explain what, I, what I'm trying to say, but it's, it's just like they're missing. I don't know if enough of them take philosophy of science. I don't know if enough of them know how to engage with people like, you know, in conversation, but it just, it's very off putting as somebody who's interested in these topics. And I had to go the alternative route to get into this stuff. And now I, I have a balance of both the alternative and the mainstream stuff, but it's just like, I don't know. We've been lucky to have a lot of cool scientists and academics on the show, but there are a lot of them out there, especially on social media, that are, are very off-putting. Oh, uh, of course. It's it's one of those subjects that just attracts, like, um, especially because mostly the reason that we're all in this is because there is an interesting mystery to do with humanity, to do with ancient history. There's one heck of a mystery here. And archaeologists will happily say in their papers, well, we're not sure why this was. Probably it was ritualistic, probably it was this, probably it was that, okay? They speculate also, they have to. Um, so there's nothing wrong with, there's, there's like, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with a load of us, as many as possible actually, loving this subject, getting into it and, and doing our own investigations. I think that's great actually, because it adds to it. And sometimes you do uncover small things which then they can actually take further on a, on a sort of academic level if they wanted to. Like, let's say you stumble across a new megalith, which is the dream, and then that's a whole new site for them to excavate and, and interpret it how they want. But, you know, um, by, by going around and doing what we're doing, we are opening up those type of opportunities as well. And I think for the general public that love mystery, it's important this proper, like, researchers, because they're not going to sit there and necessarily read through all these um, soil samples. And... It's also not necessarily great for them to listen to lots of sensationalist stuff, you know? I think it's good if they are listening to people that are bridging the gap. And there are so many of us doing that. There's some great people doing that. So I've actually been shocked by how many of them don't know about other things, even within their own field, like new discoveries Mm -hmm. and latest research. It's just, it's kind of shocking that they'd be, some of them are that arrogant considering they're so focused on just this one, you know, minutia of this one topic that you know then they go off on these rants it's just it baffles me but there are a a large number that aren't even aware of some of the latest discoveries yeah i know um and it's a shame and and you know when you hear people like graham hancock being talked of his studio i'm like come on have you read the books and the amount of data he sifted through that is not i think the the, the atlantis thing is yeah, the Atlantis thing is, I think, what rubs the researchers the most. The lost civilization thing is not crazy. 
there have been so many natural disasters in recorded history right. and then in the geological record many more disasters going back you know millions billions of years what why why can we not say that there was a lost civilization it's really not that crazy i mean i'd like to hear your take but for my personal like when we started this podcast yeah i thought atlantis was probably one real place or a civilization that got wiped out via the younger dryas impact or whatever the case may be through reading plato's dialogues a bunch of times and going through and just i'm starting to realize this is my personal belief that i think it's just another allegory in the sense that this is what could happen to your civilization because it's happened many times over as a, you know, and you're pointing out that there are real places like Gobekli Tepe and other places yet to be found, uh, Karahan Tepe and all these places, which mm -hmm. I think is, and you know, we should be looking, we should be looking at Doggerland and Sunda land and all these coastal regions as well. Uh, I will point out though, I mean, it, the Athenians weren't around, you know, 11,000, BC or 9,000 years prior no, to, no, no, you know, no. so that, so there's certain aspects that I don't understand if you've read Plato's dialogues, of how course, you could think yeah, that, course, yeah, he uses detail. Yeah. He, you know, yeah. describes it and whatever. I, that's just my personal belief. I just, like I said, I don't necessarily believe it was one place, but I look at it like the allegory of the cave where, you know, we use mm -hmm. the allegory of cave when we're talking about paradigm shifts and just this idea of this shifting consciousness. I think the same way about Atlantis where it's the story you know, it's like a, a watch out kind of a thing. Like this could happen to you one day. So, you know, that's just yeah, how I, I don't look think at... it's necessarily a specific place. But what but what it is warning us about is, I think, natural disasters, because there have been so many. Sure. There's been so much catastrophe in the history of the planet. And we are probably being warned about that. I'm not saying it necessarily destroyed a very advanced civilization, but it did destroy what the civilizations that have existed before, however advanced they might be. And... Yeah, the, I think certainly on the most basic level as a warning about disasters, it, it could be quite grounded in truth. Mm. And that's what I don't understand is when people get really crazy about that. Because I'm like, but you, you do, like, we had, um, we have tremors here, you know, like, right. how do you think it's impossible that there was, um, that that's very, well, that catastrophes have destroyed, but, and you go, like, if Santorini, that was destroyed by a volcano. Oh, absolutely. Um, so why why is it so crazy? Um, yes, okay, uh, an advanced civilization looking in a certain way. Yeah, like you say, that the war with the Athenians before the Athens existed. Yeah, it all seems a bit far-fetched and strange. But I don't think that the actual catastrophic element um, is far-fetched. And I think that right. if we look in history, there is definitely something, there is a big mystery there. In ancient history, there is a big mystery about humanity, and I don't think it's as simple as the hunter-gatherers to the Neolithic, to this, to that, Fertile Crescent West, Fertile Crescent East. I think we're missing something. Well, I mean, we've been Homo sapiens sapiens for, what, between 200 and 300,000 years? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a long time. And that's why I think even if you look at Gobekli Tepe, that's what's so fascinating to me is, is like, when did we domesticate ourselves because right that's the prevailing knowledge is that we somehow domesticated ourselves as well as domesticating animals and created animal husbandry that thing kind of a thing why did we domesticate ourselves is it and then if you look at that that's the biggest shift in consciousness and technology we could probably point to even compared to today because that was 
the point where we were like, we're done traveling. We're done migrating around. We're going to set up shop and we're going to manipulate our environment. That's at least how I look at it. I don't know if you look at it in a similar way. Mm -hmm. No, I do find it quite strange. Um, also, just because the, um, the, the agricultural revolution coincided with the end of the Younger Dryas, more or less. And it's like, okay, why, why did that catastrophe or that sort of shift in our environment change us so much? Hmm. What happened? It and seems... That, that's the theory, right, though, is the trauma from that is what had an effect yeah. on us. And I know that... Again, you could even look at Atlantis as like an archetype of, you know, of a type of civilization, whether it be, again, I don't think it was a real place, but it could just be this idea of a place where people had, you know, were doing well and then something bad happened and it created this trauma that we now have like embedded into us or our psyches. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. <clears throat> um, no, it would definitely, we're missing something and I am determined to at least kind of like okay you can't completely solve the mystery um but you can definitely come up with a new idea and i'm working on like a theory of my own um but it's i still say the um like okay so let's say there was an ancient civilization and it was it was pretty sophisticated it didn't necessarily have to look the same as ours which we may consider sophisticated or not <laughs> depending right. how you look at it um and it existed during the last ice age, let's say. And then because of the climate change, and then because of the catastrophe of the Younger Dryas, because of all those changes, um, it was destroyed. Where is it? Like, where's the evidence? Because all we have from the ice age is the evidence of hunter-gatherers. Mm -hmm. We don't have anything else, really. So, and I was saying this on my channel, like, okay, you can say maybe it's all under the sea, but I still think that would be what so they only kind of were in those areas mm. and then unless the catastrophe whatever happened destroyed the evidence or the evidence is there we're just not seeing it because it's not in a form that we would expect it to be but it, but it's certainly still a possibility i guess mm. mm -hmm. no absolutely but i'm more intrigued as to what actually happened at the end of the last ice age with the agricultural revolution and, and all this movements that happened since then and where exactly all these countries fall into in those like 10 11,000 years like what what was going on that's right. kind of more what fascinates me absolutely and uh, you know like as you mentioned you know natural disasters obviously do happen there's a new paper that just came out i don't know if you saw this where archaeologists are fighting about this right now the um tal el hamam uh, site in the Jordanian Valley, which they think could have been the biblical Sodom, or they think that maybe that was the influence or whatever. I mean, you can, you know, people talk about floods. There's a flood myth for I every. Saw that, yeah. There's a flood myth for every civilization, right? You have, uh, uh, you can go to any, you know, you have Noah's Ark, obviously, but then you have, um, and I'm not saying that found any actual Noah's Ark. I know that there's some people that talk about that as if they found certain mm -hmm. things but uh yeah just i mean you can go to any ancient civilization they have some sort of cataclysm or flood myth or 
uh, you know, that pick of Gilgamesh, you know, that could have even been the inspiration for Noah's Ark too, you know? So I, yeah, I think it about looks thi- like it was traced back to that. Yeah. Right. I think about it's things cool. like that. I don't necessarily draw direct conclusions. This was this place exactly kind of a thing, but just, you know, was there an influence there for sure? And and something did happen. I mean, we know that things really did change after the last glacial maximum. Things changed on a huge scale. Um, and the, it does make sense that, um, that the people that experienced it, what, you know, the meltwater pulses and all the changes to their environment, the people that experienced that and survived and passed it down in the generations, like you say, Homo sapiens sapiens, 200 to 300,000 years. So they were, this wasn't really that long ago. Right. Um, that they would have recorded what happened, that they would have passed it down in oral tradition, and then it would eventually get written down in the historic period when when these early civilizations developed around cities. I mean, it makes sense. It's defi- I, I don't know why we think the floods didn't happen. They obviously happened. That's yeah. geological fact. Like. Right. Yeah, it's just like, again, you can go to pretty much any, you know, even Yima and Navara from Zoroastrianism. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just so many that you can just look through ancient texts and uh, find that. But um, what do you think, let's get into, before we wrap up and start getting into the Patreon stuff, uh, do you want to talk about astro- uh, astronomical alignments and some of the megalithic sites? on Yeah, Alta? I really want to get into astrono- astronomical alignments properly because it's so complicated and I do need to research it a bit more. But I've been reading a few different things on it. So the general um, idea here is that the Niger and Hajraim temple complexes, which are close to each other, they're like 500 meters apart from one another, were oriented towards the solstices and the equinoxes. Okay, fine. Um, Just like they say Stonehenge was and whatnot. But then why were all the other temples not (laughs) like aligned with the solstices and the equinoxes? I don't get it. Um, if it was so important to them from either a practical or a ceremonial viewpoint. And then um, and then I've been reading some other theories. So there was uh, this um, temple called Tal Adi, of which not very much remains. They found this thing they call the star tablet. And it's got, um, well, clearly stars, a crescent moon, and lines carved into it. And it's just part of a tablet. And um, they think it was once a big round thing, disc. Um, it's contemporary with the Neolithic, with the temple period, and it does make you think that they were using the temples as astronomy, uh, observatories. Um, there are a few theories on this. I was reading about it earlier. So um, one of the theories is that it was this particular disk was used to measure the ecliptic latitude of the moon and the planet. And there's a few diagrams online for that. Okay, so that's that's another theory. Then... There was, I read this book just now um, by Lenny Redick called, um, oh, sorry, I've forgotten the name of it. Um, I'll message you with it. You can put it in, in the link. Okay. Um, it's about the Sirius, Star Sirius, mm-hmm. which, you know, the ancient Egyptians did a lot of festivals around um, and they observed, uh, observed the helical rising of it. Well, um, her suggestion is that Malta, all of the temples axes were aligned with the rising or setting of Sirius. And the reason why all the axes are slightly different is because it was following procession, the processional changes, obviously, of the star. Um, And 
her theory looks at the temples that are extant, where they know what the axes looked like from finding the traces of the floors. Um, but her theory is that it was followed for thousands of years and all the lost sites, um, if you were to find them all and put them all together, you would see like basically a new temple built every 50 or 100 years following the procession slowly. Mm. Yeah. Um, and anybody that doesn't know what procession is, by the way, procession of the equinox is the constellations and stars move in the sky about one degree every 72 years in a full cycle. It's also known as Plato's great year, which is what, like 25,000 years, something like that. And I had um, seen a lecture she gave at Megalithomania a few years ago on YouTube. I had seen about this book, but I hadn't read it. Finally, I read it all this week. And it's a fascinating theory. The only problem with it is that for the axes of the temples to be aligned with Sirius and to follow the procession, it has to have been during the, um, the Mesolithic. So it doesn't coincide with the Neolithic time, the dating that's been given to the temples at the moment. And that's kind of the problem because it looks as though a few academics in the past, according to her research, have also found some connections with that, um, with the azimuth um, of, <laughs> I think I'm right. not good with astronomy, you know, of, um, of Sirius. But they had to um, do away with it because, with that theory because it didn't match the carbon dating. So I think this is a really fascinating theory. I want to look into it a bit more. Um, and then there are also some other small things that have been found, artifacts, like um, with what looks like a sun on, on them. Hmm. some beads with what looks like a sun so it could have been like um, a solar worshipping temple sites um, yeah it's interesting but you know like in later Egyptian civilization it wasn't just Sirius I mean they had um, Osiris or Orion's belt they were um, looking in they they looked a lot at um, Ra the sun god they were worshipping the sun god they seemed to align things a lot with the the rising and the setting sun. There were so many um, cosmological um, symbols in what they did in their everyday rituals and practices mm -hmm. and the way that they lined their buildings. So, and I think I'd read something once as well. Didn't they change the temples, ac the axis of a temple in relation to the procession of the equinoxes as well? So we know that that was a very um, sophisticated culture in terms of the astronomical knowledge they were very, everything they did seemed to be related to the cosmos. So, yeah, I think it's very possible that in the Stone Age, the same thing was happening. That knowledge had to have come from somewhere. Mm. And, and these observations usually have to have been made over a really long period of time, unless they, it's as simple as they just look at the rising and setting sun in the seasons. Right. But if they, had, if they did um, capture much more sophisticated knowledge of the movements of the stars in their in their stone monuments, then we can say that they did have that knowledge and that, that they passed it on to later civilizations. But I'm not convinced of all of these things. The um, solstices and equinoxes, Sirius, I don't know, still feel like we might be missing something because, and I, just to tell you one basic reason why, but I won't go into d detail because I really do need to go like to look into this more. And, and like I say, from a more sort of scientific viewpoint, because I'm not very knowledgeable in astronomy. But some of the temples here, which are further away from the south coast, so to look at Sirius, you would need to, the best 
alignments were the ones where the temples are on the south coast and just um, in alignment with the horizon, you know, of the sea. Right. If you go further north, they're blocked by hills, so it takes longer before you see the star. Surely if you're really into the rising and setting of, of a star, and that's like what your, all your rituals are around, you would make sure all your temples were on the coast looking out to the horizon so you see it immediately as it comes up hmm. and immediately as it sets. So I don't know, like just before it goes below the horizon. So I, I'm not sure. I just feel like why would they do that? And then also it still doesn't explain why some, if you look at that theory, it would still mean that some of the smaller temples were later than the bigger temples. I don't know. Um, um, like Tahadrat, for example, which is a quite a small trefoiled, primitive looking temple, would have actually been one of the sort of later ones. So I don't know. I, I want to I look into it properly. I only finished the book like yesterday, um, or the serious one. Um, and the solstice and equinox stuff like that, you can just see on the Heritage Malta website. They do events around it. People go and watch it. <laughs> um, and then the the stuff about the star tablet. I mean, yeah, when you look at the graphs online, you could see that that is aligned with these um, ecliptical planes. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, for me, it's always been with the astronomical alignments and ancient people being fascinated by the stars, it's kind of a no-brainer in the sense that that's all they have really at nighttime mm -hmm. is the night sky. There's no electricity that obviously no, you know, light pollution or anything like that. So you do get great, um, you get, you know, great visuals of the sky back then. But also, I mean, even look at like ancient Greece, like Hipparchus figured out procession, Plato, you know, Plato's great year exactly is about 25,772 years. Um, mm -hmm. And then you look at, like, how, how did they know? How were they so accurate? Obviously, mathematics and, you know, a lot of it, the ancient Greeks would go to Egypt to learn about math and, and things like that uh, and come back. You have Thales and uh, Pythagoras, uh, Pythagoras and different people that have gone to Egypt uh -huh. uh, historically and then come back with some sort of superior knowledge in the realm of mathematics and philosophy and things like that so yeah i mean I, I again i think that the the astronomical alignments are, are a little bit different because they do have to be precise for it to make sense but you have to also look at where things were in the sky and in, in the exact dating mm -hmm. the dating has to be exactly on for it to like line up you know with a lot of these sites um but i was thinking you know those portals uh, in some of the in some of the megalithic sites on Malta, is it possible that some of those were like viewing windows, kind of, or maybe light would shine through there, or anything like that? Do you think that that's a possibility? Yeah, I, I mean, I always wonder that as well. I mean, that's why I actually really enjoyed this book because it just really um, opens my mind to that possibility. I, it might. I just think it might not be that star because the dating's off. But then that's what everybody's saying. But maybe we're missing something. Mm. And also, like I say, why would you build a temple by a hill? <laughs> I don't know. Like when it's coming up on the horizon. Right. You know, unless there was some. I don't know. I've always actually thought with that temple that because it looks out towards this hill, there was some significance there because that hill was caused probably, I mean, by a, by a massive seismic event, but a very long time ago. Um, mm -hmm. probably millions of years ago um, and I always wonder if they, the ancients were actually trying to capture some geological knowledge as well as astronomical in the in their temples you know because the geology of the earth has changed a lot and it's been really important to ha 
humanity's survival. So I'm not sure, but I, it fascinates me. It opens my mind to these things. Um, and I do think that there might be um, some astronomical explanations for the temples. I actually don't even think they were fully roofed. I've got it in my head that there was probably like an oculus in the middle, like when you go to the Pantheon in Rome. Sure. And it was for viewing like that. And in which case, that would change the area of the sky that you're looking at because you wouldn't be looking at the horizon. And then the axis of the temple wouldn't matter. So I know I got all these ideas in my head, but I want to look into them in a bit more detail because I'm not super knowledgeable astronomically. And and this um, this person I'm talking about, this author, I mean, she wrote a, a cracking book. Like there's really good um, research in it. It's very detailed. So um, yeah, I want to I want to kind of look into it a bit more. There are a few things. Um, there are a few things that are still really, you know, putting questions in my head and make, but the thing is every, like I say, everybody that's researching this and everybody that's putting this together, it's great because it just opens your mind to something. Then you come up with, um, you might say, okay, I'm not sure about that because of this, but then now that's given me this other idea, you know, everything contributes to, right. to this area Absolutely. of thinking. And I've also got it in my head that they, the temples said like an upstairs section because I keep fighting like, I know, there's these stairs and then in one of the temples and I'm sure it goes to this exit at the back but it also sits on the top of the fill between two walls and I'm thinking maybe there was like a, a sort of an upstairs or a roof that you actually used for something hmm. like a viewing platform how would we know because the roofs have all caved in right but quite a few have stairs either around the side or inside going to nowhere like in Tarshin there's some stairs that go to nowhere in Tassilj, which is very scanty remains, but the stairs going up around the side of the wall, and I could imagine them when the wall actually was there, going all the way to the top. Sorry, my cat. And then, um, oh. and then um, he's only eaten 16 times today. So I've got enough um, and then we have um, some stairs to nowhere at Tahajrat as well. And I just got it in my head that how would you know if there was an upstairs or not? Because it wouldn't still be there. Like right. these monuments were all found covered in soil and were being ploughed in farmers' fields at the time. Sounds like our so, uh, He'll calm down. And... <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I, that, I find that, that that noise that cat make the cats make is pretty interesting. It's like no, no. It sounds like somebody's saying no. Yeah, it always sounds like he's talking to. It. He's a very old cat. This one. He's yeah, our cat's getting up there too. How old's your cat? 23. <laughs> wow, that is old. I thought our yeah. cat was old. Our cat's 16. So um, he doesn't eat like lots in one go, just lots of small meals, which is why I have to keep um, eating. <laughs> but anyway, he's fine. Um, so, yeah, let's wrap it up here, though, and we'll do, do the Patreon segment now in a second. Um, but, uh, yeah, we can do a part three, too, once you get some of the more astronomical stuff in order and... Uh, process all that because i think that that stuff's pretty interesting especially oh, exactly. in, in correlation to all the megalithic sites and stuff so uh but thank you so much for coming back on and sharing your research and obviously your knowledge of the island and uh it's got to be fascinating to live there and be able to just go to these sites whenever and uh, i think that that's everybody's dream that's passionate and into these topics so thank you guys really enjoyed absolutely it. 
And if anybody's interested, go check out Laura's uh, YouTube channel. She does these awesome videos. They're packed with all sorts of knowledge and facts, and it shows her going to these different sites and the pic. You know, she's got pictures and everything. So go check that out. She also does stuff on uh, Instagram. She has a great Instagram channel. So go check that out. I have the link down below as well. And uh, yeah, we're about to do a Patreon segment with her. So go check that out. So before we head on out of here, if you want to head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. We're about to do one with Laura. I have one out up there with Rick Strassman from uh, last week. I've got one with Matthew Clark about uh, the, his SOMA research and what was SOMA in the ancient world. Uh, and I also have one with Laird Scranton on there. So go check those out. And uh, head on over to Indra's Web at indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. So if you like having these kinds of conversations, head on over there, set up a profile. We are still working on getting that in the App Store. And one more thing before we get out of here, if you are interested in a Mindscape t-shirt, we can enter you to win that at the end of October. So if you're interested, all you have to do is go to uh, Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review and take a screenshot of it, send it to mindescapepodcast at gmail.com, and we will enter you to win, and we'll probably pick somebody at the end of uh, October. So, again, Laura, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'll definitely have you back on sometime in the near future. And, uh, yeah, everybody stay thank safe you out guys. there. <laughs> yeah, for thank sure. Thank you. Uh, everybody, everybody stay safe out there. We love everybody, and we will catch you next time. Peace. Peace.